You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. My name's Penny Barnes. I'm an urbanist and I work at Arup, uh, a design company in Melbourne, a global company. Um, today, I'd like to introduce you to our lovely panel. We have Philippa Abbott next to me. She's head of design at Today. Uh, she's a social innovator who specialises in design transformation within large-scale organisations with uh, high-impact community and environmental objectives. Next to Philippa is Paul Durso. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Paul is an internationally renowned neurosurgeon, scientist and innovator. He is founder and executive chairman of Anatomics, an innovative medical software company implementing community-based personalised healthcare through med medical digital manufacturing in East Bentley, of all places, an innovation hub. Next to Paul, I have the lovely Greg Williams, director and co-founder of Dex Audio, Australia's only cassette tape manufacturing plant. Uh, he specialises in sound recording and engineering and CD and DVD duplication in Kensington. Next to Greg is Nick White. Nick co-founded Art Processors with Tony Holzner and worked closely with David Walsh to develop the O. Uh, which is a digital alternative to wall labels, enabling the Mona Museum's dramatic lighting and enhanced digital curation uh, navigation. <laughs> um, you'll have to all forgive me, I'm only a humble urbanist. <laughs> I feel very humbled in the presence of these extraordinary people today and I hope that I can somehow weave a dialogue between them, and probably the less I say, the better, but at least if I ask the right questions, um, we might get some sense out of what is a, a uh, very uh, difficult subject. Um, we're currently witnessing a paradigm shift, which is not just a technical revolution, but a social revolution. From smart cities to fab labs, open data, and 3D digital printing, what does innovation look like in the 21st century? How do we engage technology for a better world? Um, we have four, transformation, four extraordinary individuals here transforming lives through their products, materials, methods, ideas and systems. I'd like to start with Greg Williams. Probably I've uh, been doing this for the longest time, 40 years manufacturing in Kensington. I'd like you to describe, just to set the scene, the fabric of your community in its heyday. Well, we moved around um, from West Melbourne, uh, then to North Melbourne, and finally Kensington. And... Uh, Back in the, uh, the 80s, uh, Kensington was really good for us. Um, there was 
uh, a lot of industry in Kensington and um, it was good for us because if we needed a part made or um, um, a repair done on something, everything was virtually walking distance. All our staff were locals and um, it was as the, um, the local village grew, uh, there was um, a lot of uh, community um, activities. There were street festivals, there were parties. And all of us that ran businesses, we'd all sponsor what was going on. Um, and it was really good. And over the years, um, industry has moved on. Um, uh, a, a large part of our operation has moved out of Kensington and it's changed. It's, it's far more um, concentrated with high-density residents. Yeah. How have you had to adapt your business to keep up with this change? Uh, well, we, we needed to move our operation. Um, it became too expensive uh, to run the business in Kensington. So we moved our operations um, uh, out and we've, we've still got offices and workshops there. Um, but it makes it more complicated running two sites. Um, so uh, it's, it's very different. It seems that... Um to put a mixed-use overlay, which is a planning zone over an area, has the reverse effect in that it takes the local industry away and increases the amount of residential. Um, are there other incentives you think that could be done to help maintain local productivity and...? Well, there are. Um one of the motivators for us to move out was um, um, we used to be uh, under city of Maribyrnong um, and zoned as um, light industrial. Then we were roped into city of Melbourne. Then the next change was that we were rezoned from uh, light industrial to mixed use. And the effect this has on uh, the business is that um, uh, rates and land tax start to increase. 600% um, in three years. And it just kept on going on this exponential curve to the point where in 2014, um, the cost of land tax and rates was the equivalent of about four salaries and each two years they revalue, and I think next year it'll probably be closer to five, five and a half salaries. So business can't operate under those kind of um, increasing costs, especially when they don't actually contribute anything to the operation. So we sold, and we moved to a, um, uh, an industrial suburb, but it made me start to think about everyone else that's moved out. And um, 
in the area, every other industrial site would have been subjected to the same, uh, same kind of uh, increases, which pushes rents up. And business can't operate under those rents. Uh, landlords can't get tenants, so they sell. And they get sold to property developers because it's uh, mixed-use zoning. So it changes the fabric of the, uh, the area. Um, one of the thoughts that I did have is um, that if they... if zoning changes were restricted to when um, a property's use is going to change, then it would put the brakes a bit on those kind of wholesale changes in an area. And if land tax wasn't tied to uh, a perceived potential sale price and um, fixed around what the, the property's been used for, then you can tend to maintain um, um, use where you've got um, uh, industry or what, whatever kind of business you're, you're running in the area. And it means that um, a lot of local people could find employment from local businesses. It doesn't cause the problem of um, traffic and congestion. And it can keep that fabric where... Um, uh, producers in the in the area keep contributing to the um, the local inf the local community. Paul Derso, you have a very similar uh, industry. It's just a more contemporary one. How um, can you describe how you manufacture? in your area and um, the similarities perhaps or differences between your community that is a new one shaping and uh, uh, the, the one of Greg's that is just, that is turning into a housing suburb. So Anatomics is a company that uses 3D printing technology to manufacture body parts for people basically. Um, so it's a sort of a digital manufacturing um, technology that we use. We were located at St Kilda for 10 years uh, in literally an office type of block um, and St Kilda's gone through a transformation where a lot of high-rise units are going up and so forth. Uh, we moved mainly because we needed more space because uh, our businesses had outgrown our St Kilda office. Um, it was certainly you know, a nice place to have a, a business uh, and we've moved to East Bentley now um, which is part of an urban renewal site um, uh, with Assemble Ventures. Um, I was very excited to be a part of that, I must say. Uh, I, East Bentley, um, there's a, on North Road, there's a, an old brake factory that used to manufacture brakes for the Australian car industry, which um, obviously tanked and, and they left this massive warehouse and industrial complex there, um, smack bang in the middle of the urban sprawl of um, the southeast Melbourne suburbs. Um, this place, if you look at it, you can see it from space on Google Maps virtually, it's so big. And it's also next to, a, um, I think, an old um, Philip Morris cigarette factory as well. So there's this massive um, industrial landscape right in the middle of, 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 of East Bentley. Um, we saw this space and thought it'd be terrific for, for our business because it's kind of um, Industry 4.0 moving into the, you know, the ashes of Industry 3.0. Uh, and uh, the project attracted me a lot as well because it's an urban renewal project and how do we turn this industrial wasteland into something that will become a community within a community 
Uh, and I liked the idea that, uh, that Assemble had, which was to create community housing, uh, education and schooling, um, a new McKinnon High School there, and then also have um, some sort of high-tech industry base there. And uh, to me, that sort of um, was an exciting project. Uh, and, uh, you know, the way I see it, you know, for our company will be that we'd love to have students and high school students and university students coming onto our site, uh, learning about new technology and integrating them with our, uh, with our processes. Uh, and also then the opportunity for people to actually live close by to, to where they work. And certainly, you know, when you've been employing people for a number of years, I mean, where people live is kind of important. And um, staff retention uh, is always an issue, but people travelling from Werribee and from, you know, from you know, very far distances commuting to business, I mean, they're the ones that tend to drop off and move on somewhere else, whereas if you've got people that are actually close by and can ride their bike there or walk to uh, work or in that area, that makes a big difference for staff retention for us. So um, I, I guess it's a bit of an experiment, but um, it should be fun and, um, you know, it's sort of cool that we're in the relic of this old industrial brake factory and now we're, you know, making body parts in this with 3D printers. So it's exciting and I think it's probably the future uh, for, you know, for our society is that more and more we need to have distributed ways of manufacturing, smart, smart manufacturing and digital manufacturing uh, that can come back to communities. Um, and then the legacy of the, you know, factories and the industrial revolution hopefully will gradually uh, subside somewhat. Uh, and smart, sort of clean digital technology embedded in communities then can make use of the uh, global knowledge base that can be stored in the cloud. So we can download information from, from people, users all around the world and actually then manufacture locally. And so that's the uh, concept that I developed called community-based personalised healthcare, which is you enable communities to have the solutions to provide healthcare to their own people uh, and you let them make things that they want to for themselves, but you connect them globally with an infrastructure that can maintain quality and regulatory processes and so forth and allow sharing of information. Uh, Philippa, you have a lot to say about how communities can benefit from a digitally connected world. Uh, Tell yeah. us about some of your projects. Yeah, sure. Um, so I work for a company called Today. And Today um, basically use human-centred design and technology to look at how we can create... Um, greater social impact and greater environmental impact. Um, so we do a really big range of projects. Like right now I'm working on a project looking at how to open up climate data, so existing climate data to respond to natural disasters and what does this actually mean um, for people and their communities. Um, also working on how, how do we set up an innovation lab looking at um, humanitarian crisis caused by climate change. Um, and these things might not seem that <clears throat> excuse me, related to cities, but as we're starting to see, they really, really are. So when you look at the bushfires in the last couple of weeks, you know, there was catastrophic um, disaster warnings out for the city of Sydney. So this is really part and parcel with um, how we understand cities and how we move forward. Um, <clears throat> in terms of the question was around um, a community-led innovation, I guess. Um, so what we do at today's um, human-centred design is fundamentally about participatory processes. So it's about um, co-designing outcomes with your communities or co-designing co outcomes with your users. Um, this becomes super, super important. Like when we're talking about um, printing 3D, 3D limbs, basically the experience of that user and how they experience literally a body part um, informs the way that you can innovate. So it, allow, it allows you to basically... Um, be able to test, be able to learn and be able to innovate more quickly. 
So I kind of want to put this proposition forward around innovation, that innovation is much, as much, if not more, about the how you innovate. It's about your methodology for innovation because a lot of the things that we're talking about today, we actually don't know the answer or we don't know the outcome yet. So we need these ways of being able to innovate in, um, that allows you to replicate, allows you to iter iterate what you're doing and allows you to learn from stuff as you put it into practice and then evolve it further. Any thoughts? <laughs> I couldn't agree more. And uh, I think iteration is, is really important. And what we've learned with personalised healthcare is that every person is different. And by taking information about a person and designing a solution, every time we do that and iterate and learn from that, the patient might give us feedback or the surgeon can give us feedback, but then we, we put that back into the next thing that we design. And because we're not mass producing things, um, it, it allows intelligent design. I shouldn't not... not be appropriate to use that word, but uh, that phrase, but it's an intelligent design process where, where we're constantly iterating and improving it based on feedback mm -hmm. from the end user. And that's what additive manufacturing and digital manufacturing allows us to do because we can make objects of virtually any complexity now, an infinite complexity, and we can harness the power of that type of technology to rapidly improve and iterate. Unlike the traditional um, mass-produced world where basically a hip implant, you make five sizes and then the factory... Um, and this is the big change that's occurred and it's, it's, a, it's a massive shift in that um, if I had an idea for a hip implant, I'd, I'd secretly get a patent and show it to a few people and try and raise a bit of money and then we'd do a trial of 200 patients and see if it worked. And then if everything seemed to be falling into place, we'd raise capital and that capital would be invested into a factory and the concept is then to make as many of those as I possibly can for as long as possible um, to, get, you know, to get my investment capital back and make a profit. That's all changed now um, mm -hmm. because now every person is different and we can make a hip implant that will match each individual person. Um, and that means iterative change and iterative design is happening so quickly that there's no point patenting this type of thing any longer because by the time you get awarded a patent after several years, it's out of date because the design has actually moved forward and changed. And beyond that as well, you've got the fact that um, fundamentally through things like 3D printing, you can actually distribute knowledge and so you can distribute the capability to be able to print a, a limb in an area where there's no economy and no industrial Absolutely. And so you, you can't even protect your intellectual property <coughs> yeah. and with medical, my philosophy is we should be sharing information anyway and that's what doctors should be doing as part of their core sort of belief but anyone with a 3D printer can then manufacture that anywhere in the world and we can share that design and if they give us feedback or they add knowledge to that process then they can make a design change that suits their population and their community according to what they want. And when you're thinking also about um, like emergency relief, when you look at um, decentralisation of production to that extent, where you're actually talking about how someone responds um, in situ in, say, a very immediate response zone, like an a, emergency, then that's pretty incredible. Like, that's very powerful. It makes sense too, because it's, it's, if you've got a logistics and supply train and inventory for hip implants from a factory, you have to have a huge infrastructure to deliver that product to the end user. Uh, and that flies in a jet or, you know, there's a carbon cost and everything. Whereas if you email, email a file and they print it, uh, you know, it's obviously a lot smarter and uh, efficient, more efficient. Just want to bring Nick White in, uh, who's also done a lot of uh, user-centred design, but particularly mapping um, people uh, moving around the O, uh, around the museum with the, through the O app, which they have on their phone, and he's able to, they're able to replay journeys and optimise the, 
the way that space is used. So that, um, from a city's perspective, is a good sort of metaphor for how that could be applied to cities more broadly. Yeah, mine has often been um, kind of referred to as a, a, a macro version of a smart city. Um, we can do things inside of the museum that I think cities aim to try and do. Um, so data-driven design is often what we can call it, I guess. The um, Mona is spatially mapped, so we have a, a system that um, understands the, the physicality of Mona as a building, and everyone that uses the O, um, the O knows where a person is standing in space. So as they move around the museum, the O is recording uh, people movement through that space, and that's really around providing visitors with um, information about all the objects around them. So the O is designed to replace wall labels, um, and it's fundamentally this spatial mapping that's enabled us to do that. Um, and increasingly, we can start building really interesting features into that sort of system, like the queuing system we, we built a couple of years ago that's trying to eliminate physical queues. We can do that um, yeah, using this spatial mapping, knowing how long it takes a, a visitor to get from A to B, knowing how many people are in the physical queue and waiting and when they enter exhibits. So, um, yeah, really fascinating things you can do once you start having such an uptake of, of digital and such a great um, data source. Just a point to that is um, one of the clients we work with, this isn't one of our projects, but we came across it, which is when you're looking at this positioning technology, there's a lot of negative connotations to positioning technology, but yeah. when you extrapolate that to a city, yeah. you're looking at how people can interact with services, how they interact with space and connecting the two, and what that means for people, say, with less access to services or people with a, a, a disability, say. So one of our clients is basically using positioning technology to let a blind person navigate through cities. So through a sensor plus their phone, they can pretty much basically get it so that a person can walk around a pole. Like it's to kind of that level of satellite positioning. Yes, that's scary in a whole lot of other ways, but the fundamental ability to support people who might not have access otherwise is incredible. Yeah, very, very powerful technology. And I think the important thing is to always yeah, consider the human in that. Um, and one of the things we try and do is to not... Um, I guess, build a box around that experience, trying to make it so that people still have complete free agency to do what they want, but the data and the, the system is there to support that um, because what we find when we add these new features is we have to be really cognizant of when we also introduce anxiety. And when we develop the O for Mona, it's a, it's a non-linear-based experience. A visitor can walk around and the device gives them information about the objects around them. There's no temporality to that. There's no time... And then when we introduce the queuing system, all of a sudden we introduce this element of time where the device tells you, you can go to this exhibit now and the visitor might not know where that exhibit is or they feel like they've got to be there immediately. And so we've added this feature which we think at the time, oh, we've done this amazing thing, but then you've also got to be really cognizant of you've introduced this anxiety as well, so then how do you resolve that? So it's, it's being really iterative and, and, and learning from this and building it out in a way that... I guess you're not leaving people behind or you're, you're really aware of where it benefits some people but might impede other people's experience. So it appears to me that these uh, methods are reducing a lot of waste out of the system um, and increasing local productivity, which is obviously better for 
travel miles reduced and logistics and shipping. How can we apply this model to other industries, more specifically the building industry or construction industry, where we can digitally print building parts, yet we're building buildings that only last 15 years and the enormous amount of waste in buildings when, when they're redundant or obsolete? I, I actually um, pitched to big construction company probably five years ago now on um, it, like basically asking them to experiment with building technology. So asking them, um, 3D printing's coming, let's put together, like, and it was quite a cheap um, option, but it was like, let's experiment with all the ways that 3D printing could be utilised for you. Really, really interested. But then at the last minute, they're like, nah, it's too, too much the future, if that makes sense. And it was a really interesting point because you're like, this technology has the ability to, to build a house in 48 hours, you know. Like, it's incredible. Like, the impact for the industry is huge. Yet you don't see what's happened in the health industry where, like, dentistry and medical have, have up the uptake on 3D printing is massive, isn't it? Like, the acceleration of it. It, it is. Um, I think... One of the problems is that people make a lot of money out of waste. Waste is kind of very profitable for a lot of people, you know, and creating all of this stuff and, you know, is, is you know, if you're FedEx and you're shipping stuff on jets across the world, well, that's kind of your core business is, is distributing stuff from factories, right? So um, I think there needs to be a carrot and a stick, I guess. There needs to be incentive for people to, to use less and to reduce waste. Um, but there also has to be a bit of a stick for, you know, for people that want to continue wasting stuff, right? Um, but that's one of the barriers that we have is that there's a lot of money in waste and, and someone's paying for all that stuff that goes into waste and people make money out of that. So how do you, how do you address that problem at the same time? That's a challenge for government. Um, and I guess they have to have policies that, that balance, um, you know, waste versus efficiency um, and, and drive towards efficiency. Uh, Greg... There's a lot of uh, obsolescence in um, gadgets and videos and DVDs, players and things that get thrown on the scrap heap as well, yet you seem to have created a, a, a museum to vintage uh, technology uh, of DVDs and, and tell us a little bit about your shrine that you've created in um, Kensington and the legacy that you really uh, created there. Well, a lot of the... Um, equipment is um, from broadcast and recording and um, a lot, the majority of what we have was made in Australia and uh, we had uh, a thriving industry right from uh, making electronic components right through to um, making uh, professional tape recorders, uh, mixing consoles, microphones, speakers. We did everything and made everything that we needed. And um, one of my goals is to restore enough equipment where I can um, have the, the essence of a fully functioning recording studio, um, which is made, made up of entirely Australian-made products. And... The thing is with a lot of the older technology is uh, it can be repaired. And um, we have, um, throughout the years of our business, we've always repaired uh, musical equipment and recording equipment uh, for customers. And um, 
quite often you can restore an old, an old piece of equipment to as good as or better condition than when it was first manufactured. With a lot of the newer technology that comes out, um, it's built um, to a price and to a mass market uh, where um, the manufacturer just needs to keep the wheels turning in their factory. And repairability is not part of the consideration because that actually adds cost to the original product. So uh, a customer will bring in a, um, a piece of recording equipment for repairs. It's a fairly simple fault. Um, and when I quote them to repair it, um, often that's met with um, uh, friction because the cost to repair it is actually more expensive than what they paid for it in the first place. And so the equipment ends up on the trash heap. And um, part of what, um, where we're moving with, with our business is um, to um, produce more of uh, the, the kind of equipment that um, is needed in the music industry. Um, but built so it can be repaired. And so uh, you end up with a piece of equipment that will um, uh, last longer than the, the life of the, um, uh, that it's going to have with the owner. It just gets passed on. I often, um, when I look at an old um, tape machine from, say, the 60s, and the way, it's, the way it's built and the way it's engineered. And the, the customer asks, can it be fixed? And I can, I can tell them after taking a look at it, look, sure it can be fixed and it'll be um, working as good as it was and it'll probably outlast all of us. <laughs> I feel like there's a, a bit of a thread here of... Um open source or open data and, and making, um, repairing things, <clears throat> having the, being able to print the parts, um, having access to the original models, it means I can print the, the part that's broken for my piece of equipment. Um, you say that patents, it's difficult to put, but the time it takes to get a patent through now, it's really just a first to market is the, is the best approach. And wouldn't it be great if you put a product to market, you also enabled the parts that go into that product to be open source so that people can collectively evolve and modify and reprint those parts when they, when they do break um, rather than having to throw out, you know, the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. There's something nice in, yeah, open sourcing that stuff. I, I bought a 3D printer a number of years ago and I remember all of the parts that make that 3D printer were open source. So if anything broke in the 3D printer... Given I need another 3D printer to do this. You just need a friend with another That's 3D right. printer. But I could reprint the part to make that, and that was giving me the power to keep that thing operating, which is was sort of magic. It's um, and it, it's it also comes to um, uh, a change in in focus of um, um, how companies that produce the technology we consume uh, function because part of the obsolescence is um, once uh, a, pr a product reaches its saturation, if you like, in a market, um, they're on to the next one. 
so there's an encouragement to um, replace whatever it is you've bought in two years' time. And so what's the life expectancy of what you've just bought? And, um, you know, it happens in um, just simple things like uh, white goods. You know, when we, when we made um, white goods in Australia, it was um, uh, a lifetime investment. You would buy um, a fridge or a washing machine and you could all constantly get parts for it and there were people that could repair them and it would just keep on going. And today when um, a simple thing like um, uh, a fridge go loses a seal, it's time to replace it. And so that creates a whole lot of other complications with waste too. I think if you look at a, a broader context with globalisation, and this is something that's really changed our whole landscape over the last 100 years, is that uh, capital now flows to where they can get the part made the cheapest. And, uh, and when you start making things very cheaply, then you can start to churn them out in mass and you can distribute it from... So I think what we're seeing at the moment is a, is a pushback against globalisation now. And we're seeing trade wars and, and make it... You know, we want to make it in America or we want to make it wherever. And, and I think what we're at at the moment is people are starting to see that globalisation is great, um, but there are, kind of, you know, there are kind of downsides to all of this. And it means that we strip out our ability to make things for ourselves to people that can make it a bit cheaper than we can, which is kind of a short-sighted um, sort of situation. And like you said, with the white goods and the tape machines and so forth, I mean, we had a whole group of craftspeople and people who were doing this and that's all been stripped out to go to somewhere where they can make it out of plastic a bit cheaper. But what's the long-term consequence of that? And how does that, how does that evolve with our what's kids? What's the real cost? What do our kids do for a living? And, you know, they can't all dig coal out of, you know, out of uh, Adani, can they? So I think globalisation's great, but globalisation has been a, a great tool to make a lot of money and to give, you know, to, to strip skills out of communities and then to pay people low wages to work like slaves, basically. Um, and I think we're starting to see a bit of a pushback for that, for better or worse, I don't know. Um, but um, I, I think, and, and one of the countries that really leads this actually is China, and they're saying, make it in China. We don't want to import things from other, elsewhere. We want the IP, and we want to make it here. And how do you balance that? How do you allow IP to be freely available, but then enable people to make it for themselves? Um, and that's part of the essence of the tr trade war is that China wants America's IP, but they don't want it made in America, they want to make it in China. How do, they, how do we work this out now so that, that it's a win-win for everybody? Yeah, I did this um, interesting project a few years ago, which was in Vietnam, and it reminds me of this because it was basically, uh, it was Sustainable Product Innovation Network, um, and it was basically looking at centralised manufacturing of craft-based goods. So, you know, Vietnam make a lot of craft... Like, they still make a lot of lighting and other stuff that's um, still based on kind of traditional craft techniques. And basically the project was looking at how do you then re-decentralise manufacturing. So everyone was leaving their village to go work in the factory on the outskirt of the, the city um, and therefore building urban migration. So this idea that you had to leave your community, you had to leave your way of life and go into the city. It had all these, um, you know, on-rolling on impacts. And what was one of the biggest ones as well was that um, it meant that sub subsistence farming was going down because you didn't have the workers when you needed it, them to basically harvest. You didn't have that community connection. Families were kind of being fragmented and all of that kind of stuff. So basically what we looked at was how do you then 
re-decentralise your manufacturing by designing products with traditional techniques, um, but also designing the mould. So you're basically giving um, people a kit, the mould and the mould making, to, to weave over in their village. So basically what it meant is that they could stay in their village. They could make as many as they could make according to how much farming was on or other work was on, um, and then fundamentally like just basically drop it off at depot points, get paid... They handled all the material sourcing, everything like that. And it meant that you kind of created this decentralised network of, you know, I think it was 600 villages in the end, which allowed um, people to stay in their community. It allowed them to manufacture locally and it allowed, it supported both agriculture and kind of was one initiative that allowed the kind of, I guess, um, solved for urban migration. Obviously not all of urban migration, but it had a lot to kind of give in terms of that as well. So I think there's a really interesting factor of um, community-led manufacturing. And yes, there's a whole lot of technology around that, but there's also the social innovation of fundamentally reorienting your supply chain and valuing community as highly as you value efficiency. Um, and But there are examples, like that project was a really good example of we've centralised too much, how do we bring it back? And you can actually do it quite easily, Yeah. Nick, to, uh, describe the, um, how Mona has really um, in, transformed the lives of the local community. I'm not sure if I'm the best person to speak about this, <laughs> um, but I'll see what I can do. <clears throat> um, so Mona's built in the sort of northern suburbs of, of Hobart. I'm from Hobart. From Hobart. I've, uh, I moved over to Melbourne in 2004, um, sort of lack of work prospects down there, and... By 2006, I'd started working with David um, and he shared this idea of this museum uh, called Mona, built out at Marilla. Um, where it's built in Berrydale, um, I think it's one of the highest pokey um, suburbs in Australia. Um, very lucrative if you're um, in that game, uh, owning pokey machines. Um, when the museum opened, it's... Um, you know, we were dealing with an audience that um, hadn't often been to museums before, uh, hadn't been to galleries before. We were building a touchscreen device that replaced wall labels and in 2011, uh, a lot of people hadn't used touchscreen devices before. So there's a lot of things that were kind of stacked against us and we weren't sure what was going to happen. So we, we aimed at really making something that was super simple to use um, and we thought, let's start with the absolute basic. It's got one core purpose, to replace wall labels. Let's see what we can do. And we kind of threw the doors open at Mona. Um, there was a feature that David wanted on the O. Um, it was called Love and Hate, and let's visit his Love and Hate artworks. And when we built this feature, I didn't think much of it. Um, but what we discovered about six months after opening was that People would visit Mona and not, you know, contemporary art galleries are really daunting places for the uninitiated. Um, quite overwhelming and you don't really know what you're, you feel out of place quite easily. And having the ability to love and hate an artwork and getting feedback that other people agree with you or disagree with you, there's something that includes you in that conversation that's incredibly disarming. And this was this really great side effect of, I mean, I'm sure David had an idea about this, it, was lost on me at the time, but really, really powerful that all of a sudden we were engaging the visitors to Mona in a, in a different way than traditional museums. And I think 
the thing that we noticed is that audiences are changing really rapidly, and especially in the last 20 years. Um, a lot of newer generations of visitors to museums and cultural institutions are quite adept at managing really vast amounts of information, and they're not a one-size-fits-all. The traditional didactic model of museums doesn't really work anymore. Um, so we had to try and find a way to, to speak to that. And that was a lot of David's thinking, was around different types of content and let's let people engage in all these different ways, not a one-size-fits-all. Um, we thought we'd alienate the older generations with a piece of technology and for the most part it was the opposite. Um, having a piece of technology that enabled you to read text at your own pace, at your own text size was also really great. It meant that people didn't feel like they were getting in the way of audiences that wanted to rush around. You know, it was there was a lot of slow and fast and, and, and different ways that people would engage. So lots of things were born out of that. How it changed Tasmania, I think, is dramatically. Um, Hobart in particular. Um, when I left, there was a, th a thing, there was a, a term affectionately called uh, the flannelette curtain, which was an area of Hobart which... It was sort of the divide between the CBD and the northern suburbs and that's been blown away now. It doesn't really exist. Um, Hobart's a very different place. I, I love the flannelette curtain. I was <laughs> going to ask Greg a question about a flannelette metaphor, but I think we it's time to um, turn it over to the audience for questions. I just wanted to ask, lastly, Philippa, um, what does innovation look like for you? What's its role? I think um, innovation, as I was kind of mentioning before, I think innovation is a how. So it's this ability to experiment and kind of be brave in trying things out, maybe failing, maybe learning from that and doing something more. Um, when we're looking at the level of cities and smart cities, I think one thing I'd really like to call out is um, cities are more than places. They're, they're systems. They're systems of place-based stuff of buildings, but they're also services and they're also digitally enabled services. So if you think about every service that you use, um, even today, you know, part of that will be digital, finding out where this was, Google Maps, getting on a tram, um, using all these different ways that digital now integrates with the physical space. Um, and I think that when we're talking about innovation in this context, we really need to start, um, well, not start, a lot of people are doing it already, but we need to explore more this idea and experiment more with this idea of what is that digital and physical um, and how do we enable and think about cities as service systems and what does that actually really mean? I mean, I guess for everyone here, it means something very, very different and I think that's the fundamental of it is that you've got cities have to be able to support very different um, structures and allow for um, the growth and the conditions that um, 3D printing, you know, can happen next door to um, making cassettes that can happen in an environment which is interactive and uses positioning technology to get the best experience and educate and shift cultural paradigms within cities. Um, yeah, and I guess that's the that's kind of in a nutshell. I think that um, the complexity of a, a city versus the complexity of climate change and everything else that's going on, um, experiment more and think about things as the digital, the physical, the service and everything in between, I'd say. I, I was just thinking while you were saying that, that um, 
um, what's important is getting a, a, a bind of everything um, that you're talking about and not letting go of things that work already. And often what happens with decisions that um, uh, are being made for us is it tends to be tunnel vision. Uh, and that's where I see a lot of the uh, um, um, brick walls that we come up against and why you sometimes think, well, how did we arrive here? Yeah. That also made me think as well around um, just the whole thing of uh, looking after your outliers and that's a very design way of saying, um, like at Today we, try, we design for diversity and inclusion. So where kind of design methodologies are usually your middle ground of design for the 80%. Um, we deliberately design for the people with the least access to services or the mo most barriers to kind of entry into a service or product or city. Um, and that's a really good example as well of we need to be looking after everyone within cities and we need to be thinking about communities as um, how, how can those people who don't have um, access to a, to a place or a city or a service um, gain more access and how do we ensure we're designing for that? So, is there a microphone or should we? Hello there. Um, we're all students at Uni Melbourne and studying architecture in various forms. And we've just recently studied um, a subject called environmental building systems. Um, and I just have a couple of questions. I've written them down so I can be more clear. How can prefabrication, modular design and standardised components work with the circular economy to improve the efficiency of buildings and questioning notions of long-term sustainability, is it dangerous to build long-lasting structures in space which impose potential limitations on unknown future technological advancements? If so, should we be designing shorter-lasting structures of which materials can be easily reappropriated? And what are the pros and cons of designing for disassembly? That was like six questions in one. <laughs> no, really, really interesting. I think um, I, I think all of the above. I know that sounds like a really cop out answer, but you you need to be like we need to be able to design and experiment and iterate. Like that was the kind of a core theme that we've all been talking about, and that's also the built environment. So, say permanent structures. You know, you, like permanent structures that are built well are going to be as, as important as the ability to modularize and iterate on a temporary structure, if that makes sense. Like, all of the above need experimentation. And I don't know about you, but I'm not in a position where I can say, in 50 years, this is what the future is going to look like. This is the future of cities. So you need to be able to engage in as many ways that you can experiment and diversify and iterate and basically socio-technical evolution, which is you keep going and the things that work you take forward, the things that, you do that don't you learn from and then iterate further. So I think, I know that sounds a bit of a cop-out, but... I think um, the future will involve a mixture of everything you've described. Um, but the overarching thing is what is the, what's the impact? And if you build structures and tear them down just because you can, um, then there's an environmental cost with that. Um, if you build... Um, and what I, I think what's more important is you build... Um, a structure which will extend beyond um, the life that you can see for it. And you can see that in cities. Some buildings just remain. 
And do you think that that's dangerous to potentially have structures which uh, impose their restrictions on surrounding contexts and that you cannot really change them? If they're lasting for 200 years, they may restrict the efficiency of, of future advancements. Um, well, if it's still serving a purpose, then I think that's good architecture. Um, could, that if it's not could that be restricting potential purposes that we cannot foresee? But maybe that's also like cross-disciplinary design. So maybe it's that instead of it being about the architectural response to the architecture, it's an industrial design response to the architecture, you know, that you can retrofit old buildings with amazing solar technology that means that they're building, you know, they're creating their own energy, but you can also have the building next door being modularised and rebuilding itself every 10 minutes, you know. Not that you'd want it done every 10 minutes, but... At uh, Arup, we have a leader of sustainable development, a woman named Jo De Silva, who says that in very near future, we won't be building new buildings at all. So the onus is in designing buildings now that are built to last, but they obviously, the more flexible and adaptable they are and able to be uh, enable natural ventilation, natural daylight, some really traditional functional requirements... So it's no wonder that the warehouse typology is such a great typology for these new innovative hubs and new housing and mixed-use uh, ensemble of functions. Um, so if we can be designing the, where, the future or contemporary warehouse typology, I think it might last a bit longer than what's currently being delivered. And sorry, just one more point. Um, biomimicry of systems as well. I think that's a big one. Like we look at biomimicry as, oh, let's look at um, how we can adapt a kingfisher's beak to a train. But what does that actually mean at full systems? So in an ecology, you'll have a thousand-year tree and you'll have a seedling that every year dies, you know. So cities need to become the same to be able to adapt to climate events, etc. I think sustainability is, uh, is the key to, you know, the, the situation and whatever's going to create a sustainable community is what we need to look at. And um, I think that needs... Innovation has to occur in governance and it has to occur in, in the bureaucracy. And this is the, the bottleneck that we have is it's great to say be innovative and go and do all this sort of stuff, but you look at the... What, which council was it? The... Uh, yeah, well, the city council and they're encouraging, you know, they're putting up the rates on people, what, 600% or something. I mean, so that's not a very sustainable type of uh, bureaucracy that's trying to encourage, you know, pro rampant property development and, you know, at the expense of organic industries. So I think um, sustainability has is, is got to really be the, the primary driving force in, in all of our regulatory and bureaucracy and governance now um, because, you know, we can't afford to be just pouring money into things that are... Uh, you know, wasteful, basically. And the housing that's replaced the industry in Kensington and Arden Macaulay is designed to last for about 15 years before it starts falling apart. And yeah, one of the um, um, bigger problems that I can see is um, property develop developers are motiv motivated by profit, which means that it's the maximum number of uh, residents at the lowest building cost. And what you often see is building structures that are not built to last. And so they may turn a profit when they sell it. But the question you've got to ask is, will that building still be there in 20 years' time? And so for a short-term gain, 
for a building to be torn down and then have to build something to replace it, I think that's a problem. Yeah. Hello. Um, first of all, thank you for the very interesting discussion. Um, so you talked about the benefits of digital transformation, how it's bringing quick change and innovation. At the same time, it's creating this habit of people expecting things to be quickly, effortless, and in a perfect form. Uh, we lost that ability to you know, be okay with that testing trial and error phase that you need in innovation. Uh, seeing that we are at a point now that we're facing a crisis around the environment and sustainability where people need to go into action and, and make that effort, uh, my question to you is this. How do you see innovation helping that and how do you see digital helping to push people to make that effort and to also be more accepting in trialing different systems until, so that we have that change in system and infrastructure that we need? Changing people's behavior, that's a big question. Um, it is a problem because um, it's, um, I mean, we've all heard it, it's the I want it, I want it now syndrome. And, um, but nothing happens that way. Nothing, nothing that um, is going to be long-lasting and um, provide something substantial for a community. It doesn't happen that way. Um, Melbourne didn't just arrive one day, it's, it's built up over 200 odd years and it's still changing. So um, I think the question is, how do we instill patience? <laughs> I also think there's something around, um, like user-centred design is, you know, your, your relationship of how you design to an object. Human-centered design is, you know, humans and the way they interact with their environments. But there's, and we have this conversation quite often of around, is it actually beyond human-centered design? Like, is it planet-centered design as a methodology as opposed to, or is it, you know, is it a moot point? Have we created, you know, basically perpetuated selfish behavior? You know, you could ask. But you need those accountabilities in place for, um, how you design things. So one of the kind of common frameworks of human-centered design is desirability, feasibility, viability. So we've started trying to, uh, trying to also build in like impact. So you do your impact evaluation as part of your design methodology to look at how you can be more accountable to your context, to your environment, um, and start to look at those unintended consequences, you know. Airbnb dis disruptive innovation also causing massive gentrification and issues for housing affordability. I, I heard a stat that Bondi is now 40% Airbnbs. So you've actually taken a whole lot of housing stock out of the market in central Sydney, you know. I think um, it, it, the whole consciousness of our society has to be um, driven towards sustainability and value, right? You have to value what you've got. And if we don't value it, you throw it away. And um, so kids and, and our consciousness has to be not how lovely the new glossy thing that you bought looks, but gee, you know, that, that seems to be, uh, you know, where's your value in, in, in replacing things and upgrading and doing all this type of things? Why aren't we making do with what we've got? And, and really, I think um, that's what we need to, you know, fight against is the consumerism and the globalisation and the disposable society that we have and create value in things that you really need. And you don't actually need much. And if you think about how much stuff you really need, there's not a lot of stuff you really need. If you get rid of, you know, 99% of your stuff, you're probably going to be okay. 
Um, so we really just need to value what's important, and that's got to be uh, in, you know embedded into education and, and teaching of, of children. You know, value things, and it's not a disposable society. And a good example of that um, is just with the plastic bags at the shop, right? Um, what value do you put in a plastic bag? Nothing, because I just throw it away. Well, if you don't get your plastic bag now, what value do you have for the bag that you brought along with you? Well, I kind of value that because I'm going to have to reuse it and uh, if people see it's a really daggy bag or whatever, they, you know, so you, you might want to have a nice bag to take to the shop. Um, so things that are thrown away um, have little value. Um, we need to start thinking about, well, what is important and how do we, how do we bring those, uh, you know, those ethics into our younger people to value things, not to not the, the consumerism and the disposable stuff, you know, the plastic toys at McDonald's that you get with your Happy Meal and you chuck in the bin, all this sort of stuff. It's, that's got to stop and it's got to stop really quickly now because we can't afford it. Um, and the plastic toy from McDonald's is floating around in the ocean and ends up being swallowed by some animal and dies. I mean, we can't afford that sort of stuff. So, but that's a peer group pressure, you know, and, and humans are very strong in peer group pressure. Like, it's not appropriate to buy your kid the plastic toy, you know, it doesn't look good, right? Stop. And, and it's those little things that we do with each other to say, wow, that's really cool. You've, you've, you know, you've patched up your jeans or you've done that and that's cool and that's a craft and that's a skill. You've repaired your... Uh, tape recorder, isn't that cool? You've got an old car that looks great. You know, you've got a bicycle. It's you know, I think it, it's a one-to-one -one sort of thing that we start valuing that type of thing rather than the glossy disposable now and 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 chuck it out sort of you know the the, the sugary pop and the bubbles. Beyond that as well, I think there's also this thing around like one dollar, one vote. Like think about your money as your political sway. Like we have a really pretty crazy political system, but every dollar you spend is actually a way of voting for a more sustainable lifestyle. And start really embedding that, like consumerist activism, you know, like use every cent that you have, whether it's super, whether it's how you buy a coffee, and look at how that supply chain works and look at how you can ethically drive things through that expenditure, you know. Like when you put those two things together of valuing what you have plus valuing what you spend, it... it can actually create a critical mass a lot quicker than you think. And just to kind of put that in context, humans are very good at changing. Like um, iPhones, I think the first iPhone came out in what, 2004, wasn't it? 2008. So we're talking 11 years of iPhones, which are a phone internet access, coding development and an interactive touch point, right? We have all adapted our whole way of being, our behaviours, our, our psychology, our neuroscience is now changing because of phones, right, in one year over a decade. Once we get serious about climate, we can do it. Like, it's, that's 10 years. Like, it, it's, there isn't a doubt we, we're capable of it, you know, and iPhones show it. Totally agree. <laughs> that's a very positive message to end on. <laughs> I think we might leave it there. Thank you all for coming. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.